It's the Fighter Wear Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And as promised at the end of our weekly show yesterday, we have an interview for the third week in a row, I think this is, Jeff. We've been very busy. We're, we're hitting our stride, um, coming into the season, warming up well. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to go into a cricket metaphor. It's too <laughs> cringeworthy. No, that's fine. Uh, our interview is with the Irish captain, Andy Balburnie. Uh, Andy's a guy I've had the, the, the pleasure of interviewing a number of times for his international career. He's a... He's a great talker. Uh, he's a great leader of this side. He's been leading Ireland since, I think it was late 2019 when he took over formally as captain when William Porterfield stepped down after his long and productive career, having led them all the way back to the 2007 World Cup. So we're actually in Essex in Chelmsford. They're not playing these one-dayers against Bangladesh in the World Cup Super League over in Malahide simply because it's too hard to get the ground for multiple times per year. If they want to use Malahide, for a bilateral series of three one days. It takes them like three weeks worth of hassle for the local authorities and the extra cost and impost of that. So they come over here to play these ahead of a, a three-day game against Essex before the Lord's Test match. So they're residents of Essex for the next three or four weeks. Yeah, well, I I'd, I'd had a, an inkling that it was also because they were worried about the weather in Ireland in May, but um, they got rained off in their first one day against Bangladesh. <laughs> so if that if that were a factor, it hasn't worked out so well. So Andy's played over 200 times now for Ireland across formats and uh, a lot of other list day and, and first class games as well before they had full member status. He's made, looking through it, eight one day hundreds, the most recent of which was earlier this year. He's one of these guys, Jeff, who's improved his record after becoming leader. You get them sometimes who really take to the responsibility of being captain and leading and the added responsibility seems to work for them as a, as a batter too. And I, I think it was also just a coincidental case of him coming into his prime, playing more international cricket against tougher opponents and over the last three to four years that's when he's really flourished, um, particularly through that one day Super League period where you know he's, he's made hundreds against good opponents, he's made big hundreds as well and he's shown what he can do. So I, I think he would have been on an uptick anyway, um, if, if not for, even if not for the leadership, but it certainly hasn't hurt him um, as he's gone on with his career. Now he's an impressive guy and it's an impressive story, that of Irish cricket. Uh, here it is, Andy Balburnie on The Final Word. I'm sat in, well... Let's be honest, a hotel car park in Chelmsford. Not with an Essex player, not with an England player, but with the Irish captain, Andy Balburnie. Welcome to The Final Word. Thank you, Adam. Very good to be here. Thanks for making time for us. You're, you're playing a, a three-game, one-day series here against Bangladesh. It's your home game at Essex, which is a little bit unusual, but it precedes you playing a, a three-day game against Essex in the Red Bull stuff, then a test match at Lords. I mean, you're, you're right in the middle of a very busy uh, time for your side at the moment. Yeah, it is. Uh, Paul Sterling said it to me yesterday. Our winter finished about seven days ago and our summer is, is straight into action um, over here in Essex. So it's great to be here. Uh, the weather didn't really play ball for us yesterday. Uh, we knew we had a bit of a uphill task to qualify automatically for the World Cup. Uh, but I wasn't to be. Um, but like you said, it's a really exciting summer uh, when you've got a test match at Lords in the calendar. Calendar that's always something to look forward to, uh, and we're very fortunate that we have that sort of 
three-day game leading up to Lords as well to, to try to sell, to try to get ourselves into some nick before that. So you got out of jail yesterday a little bit, I suppose, in that Bangladesh first one day. Despite bowling really well and keeping them at 250-odd, you're in a, a bit of strife early on with the bat when the rain came down. Uh, Ireland didn't get out of trouble in the Eurovision semi-finals last night, though. Did you guys get together in the hotel bar and watch it? We actually watched the Champions League semi-final. We did, <laughs> we did see that the Eurovision was on, but we haven't done so well uh, in the last few years, so we decided to skip that last night and watch the football. As is always the way after you get a game rained off. It's a beautiful blue sky, sunny day today. But you'll have to take a deep breath and go into that World Cup qualifying stage again. I, I guess you know that you've been there before. You've gone through that experience a number of times. Yeah, it's it's certainly not ideal having to, to go to Zimbabwe in the middle of our summer. But at the same time, I think it's such a cutthroat competition that if you come out of that, you'll come out of it with a lot of confidence. And there's a lot of our guys that haven't experienced, like we were obviously there in 2018. Uh, there was a number of us there uh, who are still involved. So it will be really tough. Obviously, Sri Lanka and West Indies will probably go in as favourites. Zimbabwe, the home team, Netherlands, Scotland, Nepal. There's a lot of good teams in that competition. And we know that it's quite important to hit the ground running from the off and, and get some momentum. Um, there'll no doubt be some Duckworth Lewis involved and run rates involved, um, which is exciting for the neutral. But um, no, it's, it's, it's more cricket for us. And if we qualify for the World Cup, it'll be one of our best achievements as a 50 over team. So hopefully we can do that in the next few months. And, and you're such a transient side at the moment you know, in Asia, playing three test matches recently here uh, for what we've already discussed. Then off to Zimbabwe in the middle of your summer for the World Cup qualifying campaign. It's not like it was maybe earlier in your career when there was less cricket. It was a, an amateur side or a semi-pro side now you're quite conditioned to the hustle and bustle of the international schedule so you're in a better position to to go into a tournament like that pinch it and do well yeah i think so and i think uh like you said when i first got involved in the team it was there was there wasn't nearly as many fixtures three formats it is very demanding as a player as a captain um it, you know you spend a lot of time on the road which which has its challenges as well um, but at the same time, it's it's a short career and I won't get to do this for the rest of my life. And I'm very fortunate that I get to do it uh, at the moment. You know, it feels like yesterday we were at a World Cup in Australia and that mm. was only, you know, a few months ago. But that's kind of part and parcel of international cricket at the moment. You have to be adaptable. Um, we don't have the, the biggest group of players to, to choose from. So we have to kind of, you know, pinpoint our, our key players and make sure we keep them, look after them, keep them well rested, but at the same time, make sure they hit the ground running when it comes to big important tournaments like this qualifier. So um, it's exciting. There's a lot of things happening and, and then you throw a sort of test match in Lords against a really good England team on top of that. Um, it has its challenges, but I mean, what an exciting time to be an Irish cricketer, I suppose. It's been really heartening for people who follow Irish cricket with an interest to, to see you playing test matches with some frequency, playing in Bangladesh, a couple in Sri Lanka, the one at Lord's coming up. Are you, for a little while, are you getting the feeling of what it might be like to be an England player or an Australia player where you you don't just have a test match every couple of years, you know, you've got a decent run of it, um, getting the rhythm of that game and uh, and getting those experiences? Yeah, it was very interesting, the the, the three tests in Asia. We, we played our first three matches over, a, you know, a couple of years and then didn't play for a few more years. And then we had three games in the subcontinent, which... You know, where you know, particularly Sri Lanka was as challenging uh, a time as I've had as as a as a captain. I suppose it was it was really tough um, playing against players who are so good in their own conditions. But I have to credit the players off the back of you know barely any first class cricket to go out and try to compete with teams like that and and always want to be up for the challenge was was a credit to them. And uh, yeah, it is. 
I, I don't think I feel like an England or Australian cricketer. I don't think I ever will. Um, it's there's certainly um, streets ahead of us in, in every in every department, but. Whenever we do take the field and play those teams for that day or for that three or four days, we believe that we can compete and beat the teams, even though we don't have the same luxuries that these top players and top teams have. I suppose you personally, as Ireland's most important player, you've played in every Test match, right? I mean, you've been there now for for such a long stretch of time, 32 years of age, right in the the peak of your career, that when you go out and and play in a Test match, you you do feel somewhat conditioned to playing in the format, which couldn't have been the case when you uh, played your first Test back at Malahide in in 2018, which which didn't go so well personally, but was a a momentous week for Irish cricket. But now you know what it's like to, you know, put on the creams and uh, and put on the, the, the... the, the lovely knitted jumpers that you guys wear as well. Yeah, well, I haven't had too uh, much time to wear the jumper because every time we've played, it's been very, very hot, except for that first test match. Uh, the Lord's test was, you know, probably record temperatures um, for that week. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a well-hardened test cricketer with six tests under my belt. It's, I, I don't think that's the case. And I've, you know, I've maybe played 30 or 35 first-class games and, and that's a lot compared to a lot of our group. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it was something that I dreamt of doing when I was a kid, and and I still say to this day the most memorable kind of moment in my Irish career was my Test debut, even though it couldn't have gone any worse. I I remember obviously getting two ducks and and then uh, dropping Babar Azam and second slip in the in the final chase, and but it was still the best week of my life as a cricketer, and uh, the Lord's Test came pretty close to it. I think all the moments that I've cherished have been in Test cricket. And that's the appeal to me. I think it's the best format. It's the hardest format. The ebbs and the flows are so intriguing to watch as a spectator, but also as a player and a captain to try to to try to change the game when it's not going your well, trying to keep it steady when it's going your well, it, going your way. And I just I hope that in the next few years, and you know, when I finish playing, that Test cricket is going to be on the cards more regularly for the Irish team. If it's any consolation when it comes to making a pair in your first test match, W.G. Grace's brother, Fred, did that. Graham Gooch did it. Marvin Adepartu. I, I know, so, I know uh, all the Dean names. Elgar. I, there are some I, good players. For about a year's time, I, I think my dad, every time I went over for dinner, he'd come up with a new name. Um, and it was about a year later, and I was like, this needs to stop now. Uh, I've got off the mark. I remember this first innings against Afghanistan. I was obviously nervous as hell, and I nicked one through Mohammed Shazad, which which was hard to do in itself um, and it went for four so I was absolutely thrilled um, but yeah the odd name keeps popping up and um, whenever I see someone make their test I think I was watching the the Amazon tests and I saw Marnus Labuschagne's debut and he got a duck in his first innings and I was intrigued to listen to him and his mentality about it because no one wants to do it on their debut but some people have to um, and that's just the way it, and I'll, I'll always be in the history books which is nice I suppose. The one big difference between uh, 2023 and 2019, the Test match at Lords, is that pretty much the golden generation have retired. Uh, I don't think any of them are left. I know you played at the start of your career with, with those players and, and are part of that as well. But as far as the guys that were there at, well, St. Patrick's Day in 2007, which is the forever reference point for Irish uh, men's cricket, uh, that now the side that play under you, a lot of experienced bodies, but still it, it, it's your side. It's not uh, a side that, that came through and, and blazed a different kind of trail. Yeah, and... W- I think the young players coming up are well aware of the fact that a lot of us wouldn't be in the position we are because if it wasn't for those players and we kind of, whenever it's needed, we do remind the players, you know, whenever we see ex-players come into the group or chat to the group, it's it's an honour because those guys were the, you know, the 2017 that went to West Indies, they were all 
like amateur and and what they did was just so incredible and it spurred on my generation and and that's what I've always said as an Irish cricketer is we have the unique opportunity that we can inspire generations in our, by our performances so you know our win against England at Melbourne before Christmas is is something that kids will want to wake up and watch and that's the kind of influence you want to have and the way you want to play the game is very important because people want to watch exciting cricket um, if you lose so be it but if you lose playing a certain way then people want to watch you so we're very fortunate that we have a good group of level-headed youngsters coming through now who understand the the path that had been paved by the group before us and and we get to kind of reap the rewards of these test matches at Lords and stuff like that. There is so much talent in that group, the likes of Josh Little, Lorcan Tucker, um, Curtis Camp for Harry Tector. These kind of players who don't have huge international experience, how do you handle being a captain to those players and do you find yourself in a position of needing to be a mentor to them or, or do you approach it a different way? I don't, yeah, I don't like to, if they want to come and talk to me or they have something they want to talk about I'm, I'm always open naturally I won't kind of go looking for something if I sense something is up I might pull them aside but it's such a interesting group because a lot of these guys are actually experienced international cricketers but not experienced kind of first class list A cricketers like a lot of these guys have you know 50 60 ODI caps but maybe 70 or 80 list A games which includes those ODIs so these guys are experiencing their cricket education through international cricket, which is very unique, but they're also doing very well at it, which is a huge plus for us as a team, but also me as a captain. Um, there will be times where they do things wrong, I'll do things wrong, and we have a pretty good close-knit group that we can help each other out whenever that happens. Um, like I said, it's it's the kind of usual suspects whenever we play. It's the same sort of names. You named a few there, the young group, and then there's like myself, Sterling. Uh, Dockerell, these sort of guys who are Craig Young, who who have been around for a bit longer. So we're a good we're a good group now, and we know each other pretty well. Notwithstanding the fact uh, that you remain the most important player in the Irish side by sort of some way, maybe the second most important is Josh Little. You know, your left arm quick, and he's not going to be there at Lords. He's being managed or rested or whatever the language that was used in the media release last week. Putting to one side that the management that's required through the summer with the World Cup qualifier and so on, are you just kind of frustrated that it's not possible for him to turn out at Lords with you guys? Yeah, I, well, I, th- I think you want to have your best players playing. Like, we're going to Lords for a test match and we are not, we can't pick our best 11. That, that certainly is a bit strange, um, but it's out of my control. You know, I know Heinrich was keen to have him involved, but we also have to be pretty smart with it. Um, the most important fixtures for us this summer are actually the World Cup qualifiers, both 50 over and 20 over. Josh is here in Chelmsford, then flying back for the IPL. His team, Goodred, are doing really well. They'll probably go all the way to the knockouts and, and potentially the final. And, and that's a lot of cricket. Um, and he's had a lot of cricket before that um, in the leagues that he's played all winter, the World Cup with us. He went to Zimbabwe with us. So we have to actually look after him as well. We have to be mindful of that and make sure that we have him fit and firing for those really, really crunch games. Because naturally, OK, we want to be at our best and do really well against England at Lords because a lot of people will watch. We want to prove ourselves to so that in the next few years we can come back and play them again. We also have ODIs against them at the end of this summer uh, to look forward to. So, yeah, you want him playing, but at the same time you have to be really smart about how you look after him. This might sound a bit cynical, but now that you can't qualify automatically for the World Cup, having not 
been able to win yesterday. So a reminder that to achieve that, you would have needed to have beaten Bangladesh 3-0 and hammered them for net run rate. So that, that can't happen after the no result. Is there a temptation to say to Josh, look, just have a week off and come and play at Lords with us next month? I, I, I think that would be really tricky and it would be something that I wouldn't... Ha- I wouldn't have too much of a say in. I think I try to leave that to, to Heinrich and the powers to be because I don't want to get involved. Josh is a guy that I've known since I was a kid. I don't want to. I'm not stupid enough to know that the IPL is so important, not just for him as a player, but financially it's so important. And that's the kind of elephant in the room sometimes. But it, it is also, it's a it's a game changer and a life changer. You know, we're not we don't get that sort of money as an Irish cricketer. Not many international teams get that. So um, that's really, that's a key part of it as well. But certainly I think we want to play in these two games. Um, that may change, I don't know. Um, but I, again, if I'm asked my opinion, I'll give it. But I won't be too um, forceful as to say um, Josh has to 100% play for us. If, he, if it's right for him to go back to the IPL or whatever the case, as long as he's happy, that's fine with me. You've had some very memorable moments on recent appearances on the main stage, the last couple of T20 World Cups, um, Curtis Camper with the double hat-trick in 2021 and, and then last year, I mean, you know, last year was a significant comeback campaign. You'd lost to Zimbabwe, you're in trouble against Scotland, pull off a superb run chase against Scotland, against the odds, make it through into that main draw, beat England, as you mentioned, on the MCG. I mean, Lorcan Tucker taking on Mitchell Stark, effectively knocking Australia out of the semi-finals with that innings that he put together. It, it must have been like just a thrill at different times through those moments to see what your players were able to do in the spotlight. Yeah, I you know, I spoke a lot of it at the time about the T20 World Cup in UAE being one of the lowest points of my career. Maybe think about what I wanted to do going forward as a captain, as a T20 player. But kind of sitting down with the the people above, we we set out a plan. We obviously lost our coach Graham Ford, which was a huge loss, but in Heinrich, we got someone who had a clear plan and a clear way of how he wanted to play. Um, we made a couple of changes, a couple of big changes at the time um, that were, you know, huge calls for Irish, like Kevin O'Brien um, being left out of a group is is something that was very difficult for, for us to do. But at the same time, we felt that it was the right thing to do to give someone like Lorcan a chance. And, and we got we got our rewards for that sort of as the year went on. I think two of the the better T20 innings of the of the year were played by Lorcan, one of them being at Bristol against South Africa and the other one being against Australia at the Gabba. I mean, that Australia one, if you just take that out of context, that was so impressive what he did. Even going into the last over, second last over, I still felt we could have won the game because he was in there, not out. Barry McCarthy was with him, um, who can bat. But that kind of belief that we had, even though we were like five down for not a lot, I really you know, could have gone either way and historically might have gone the other way. But the fight that we showed and the character we showed kind of showed where we were at as a T20 group. And yeah, I think the the World Cup was a bit of a um, redemption story, I think, from, from what had happened the previous year and losing to Namibia and Charger. It's a pretty special individual performances there, but it felt as an observer at those games that uh, the Scotland win just gave you so much belief the way you played against England taking down their their premier bowlers often in their first over you had a plan you make 60 odd to lay the foundation yeah sure Duckworth Lewis helps towards the end but you've got to put yourself in a a position to be ahead on that measure then you absolutely hammer the West Indies it it felt like the 2015 World Cup that opening fixture of the 50 over stuff when you beat them there and it felt like it was preordained that you were going to beat the Windies who are a a full member nation. They've won the T20 World Cup in the past and, and you bounced them as though it was 
uh, a conventional uh, game of cricket where you were the favourites. It must feel good when you can really stick it to opposition, which are obviously receiving far more resources than you are from the ICC and, and all the rest of it with the, the history and legacy of success. Yeah, and we kind of, at the start of the week, they lost to Scotland. We felt that they were a team that were maybe a bit not together. Um, you kind of always get that sense with the West Indies group that, it, and it is hard, I think, for them because they're a lot of players from different parts of the, the Caribbean and you're trying to f- blend them into one team. Now, they've got some amazing cricketers. You know, there's so many West Indians playing in, in the IPL and stuff like that. But I think, yeah, certainly you mentioned the Scotland game and I actually think that was our most impressive win. As good as England was and as good as the West Indies was, I think where we were against Scotland, like literally down and out, packing our bags and, and Curtis and George produced one of Ireland's best T20 partnerships, in my opinion. Um, so the West Indies game, I think we just started pretty well and didn't stop. Um, it was probably our most complete performance as a group. Chasing a low enough score, we got off to a good start and Lorcan came in and just carried it on. And it wasn't a, it didn't feel like a shock at the time. It might've felt like it to the world or the cricket watchers, but certainly from the first ball to the last, I think we completely dominated the game. And we had obviously had success against them uh, at the start of that year in 50 over cricket. So we didn't fear them at all or, or fear the players that they had. And yeah, I think it felt more pressure the first two games in that group against Zimbabwe and Scotland, I felt more pressure than I did in that West Indies game, certainly. We've been huge fans of Curtis Camper on this podcast. We spoke to Warren Dutra, the Chief Executive of Cricket Island, I think the week before he made his international debut against England a few years ago, and he's like, this is a kid to watch. Like He, he really wants this. He's made a decision to not be a South African cricketer. He wants to be an Irish cricketer, moved to Ireland to play in a domestic setup and, and all the rest of it. But you've got a guy now who's a, a genuine match-winning all-rounder with the ball or the bat. Yeah, I have... And I've said it quite a few times, I have so much respect and time for what he did uh, just to jump up and move from South Africa during a pandemic as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old and just dive straight, in, straight into Irish cricket and everything that Irish cricket and kind of playing club cricket, playing inter-pro cricket and then playing international cricket. I think at the time there were certainly a lot of questions about whether it was right to pick him. Um, but, you know, I'd seen enough in the nets to know that this is someone you want in your team. He kind of created something with the ball and he was pretty pla- organised with the bat and he showed that in the way he performed in that series and, and from that series you knew you had someone that you wanted in, in all three formats. Um, having a player of that ability is, is someone you want to bring around with you. His test 100 in Sri Lanka was you know, flawless. He didn't give a chance. He, he looked like he could have got a double 100. Um, he was that good. And even the short spells he bowled with the ball, he showed he could bowl heavy balls and, and bouncers and, and set a fields accordingly and just a really smart cricketer. And, and someone that we're very lucky to have. The World Cup Super League era has been a significant one for your team, uh, a long run, 24 one-day internationals played uh, against a bunch of teams across that three years from 2020 to 2023. I mean, really, that was the, it seemed like that was the big target that you were installed as captain for at the end of 2019 to tackle that next few years. Had some big results in that period as well. Um, beat England, beat South Africa, beat the West Indies a couple of times and won that series. I mean, you've still got two games to go against Bangladesh, so you'll play the last couple of matches of the World Cup Super League and you played the first series as well against England, knocked them off when you made 100 in that game as well. Take us back to that 
match against England to, to start things off, that huge run chase, that Irish number, 329, um, a familiar sort of run mm-hmm. chase number. And uh, there seemed there was a bit of symbolism in there with you and Paul Sterling going out and, and tonning up and running it down. Yeah, it was, it was quite unique, actually. Um, it was the whole setup um, being at the Aegeus Bowl, and it was peak COVID. I mean, it was 2020, no one doing anything. Um, the Aegeus Bowl was just the perfect place, the hotel, the facilities. And yeah, the first two games went just kind of, just went by us really, apart from Curtis's performances. There was nothing really to shout home about. We were in the game a bit in the second game. I remember we had just got Moeen Ali out and there was genuine belief that we could have got something out of it. But yeah, the third game was weird. It, funnily enough, the night before, the day before, the night before I was in hospital, I, I kind of, I fell during the nets. It was, I don't know whether it was my heart or my pulse or something. I just didn't feel well. So I had to go to hospital and there was a lot of chat whether I could play the next game because I got out of the bubble. Um, but fortunately there was a hospital that was part of the bubble and I had some tests done and was given the all clear. And I remember going back to my room and Paul was there and we were just chatting about, you know, two of us hadn't done well in the first two games. So we were both like, I hope it goes well tomorrow and we need to probably put in a performance tomorrow. And I think chasing gives you that freedom and especially when you're chasing a score like that we knew the wicket was pretty good and the lights came on and there was a short boundary to one side and the way Sterlo went off it was clear that when I came in it was just to kind of hang in with him for as long as possible he was going to hit enough boundaries that if I got a few away while rotating the strike with him we could build something and and I, th- I don't think you think about it too much when you're out there you just bat and, and play it as you see it and yeah we just we kept going and it's a shame that the two of us couldn't have been there at the end but I think it was pretty fitting that you had Kev at one end and Harry at the other, who was a you know a twenty-year-old who we weren't we we knew would be a good player. We you know he's turned into you know a world-class player now at this stage for us. Um, but it was a, a fitting end to a a long week because we weren't sure when we were going to play again. It was so worrying at the time when we would play, and naturally, as a small country in in the cricket world, uh, we couldn't put on a show like England did at the Aegeus Bowl. We don't have that sort of a infrastructure so yeah it was certainly a special end to that week and certainly one that we'll remember for a while yeah it's the least professional i ever remember a press box being uh, on the other side of the ground to, to the hotel people were genuinely cheering for ireland in in, in lieu of a crowd we were the crowd mm. uh, and uh, it was that thrilling end and kevin being there at the finish as it was in in 2011 the same target but bad journalism from me i had no idea about this heart scare the previous day i don't think anyone did no it wasn't um, it you wasn't. did a good job craig he's down your brilliant comms manager did a good job of keeping that out of the press at the time yeah, i suppose well, but it's it. i mean the fact you turned up after having what sounds like a pretty serious health scare that that's a that's a that's a major moment yeah it wasn't it, I, did, I didn't want it uh, i didn't want anyone to know i obviously told my wife but yeah, it was just weird. I was batting in the nets and I just I then felt dizzy and just didn't collapse or anything, but just got down my haunches and was like, I don't feel right here at all. And um, they made the decision to take me to a, a cardiologist and he did a number of tests and said, I was yeah, there wasn't too much wrong with me, but, but definitely keep an eye on it. I got the all clear to play, felt fine the next morning and then just kind of cracked on. So yeah, it was, I was slightly worried for a period of time there, but uh, I got through it and it was fine. It was actually, it was nice when you talk about being no crowd. I can still remember the guys who weren't involved and weren't allowed in the changing room were sitting on the balcony of their hotel room just watching. And so it was nice to have even five or six familiar faces just there cheering you on as well. The way you knocked off South Africa was, it looked like it was a, a routine win in that way Adam was talking about before, racked up 290 and bowled them out well short of that. And then going to Jamaica and beating West Indies 2-1, I mean, that 
must be its own kind of satisfaction. You know, getting a win against a major country, yes, but going and winning a series in their backyard is something else. Yeah, it was a really um, difficult tour because David Ripley came in as a kind of interim coach who did an amazing job and, and the players absolutely loved working with him. He picked up COVID, I picked up COVID, Lorcan Tucker had COVID, Simi Singh had COVID. It got to the stage where we had a team meeting and a lot of the guys were a bit concerned and weren't sure. It was, I think it was after the first ODI and quite a few of us wanted to go home because, you know, if we went on with the tour and picked up COVID the day before we were to leave, we would then have to spend another 10 days in Jamaica in a hotel room. And a lot of guys didn't want to do that and they were very worried about it. So as players, we actually, we wanted to leave and we went to the, the people above us and said, we want to go, we don't want to be here. COVID is clearly rampant in the hotel. There's guys picking it up left, right and center. We then got word back that that couldn't happen and we were like, that's fine, we'll crack on. And that night I got it. So I was sitting in my room and I was like, how, how are we going to come up and try to... We were one nil down and we had guys making debuts and Sterlo came in as captain. And yeah, it was just... I remember watching it with such pride because of the... And I don't think West Indies had lost any players through COVID. We had lost me, the wicketkeeper, one of our seeming, uh, spinning all-rounders who got... was in the ODI player... The, team of the year the year before um so we really weren't sure how it was going to go and i remember you know harry got 350s in the game and stood up became the harry tactic that we know now and and the player that he's become and andy mcbrien had a series to remember as well got player of the series so two really key players for us stood up and 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 made names for themselves in that series yeah i think they'll be like there's a lot not yet written about those pandemic series, I think, because partly what we joked about before with there's no media scrutiny because we can't actually talk or see the players, but also, as you say, like internal meetings, internal dialogue that made it so difficult to crack on, but it, so you did, and having that, that victory, the 2-1 win in Jamaica, where it all started on St. Patrick's Day in 2007, of course, a great ground for, for Irish cricket, Sabina Park. Yeah, you mentioned two of them there, Harry Tector having to come into his own, Andy McBride, he seems a cricketer reborn. George Dockrell, who you touched on before, was important in that series against the Windies as well. In the case of McBride and Dockrell, you've got two guys who were probably not in your best 11 uh, in 2019, or, or at least in the margins of it, who are now two guys that have really stepped up for you, especially in short-form cricket. Yeah, and I think if you take cricket out of the equation, they're just two people you want, your, you know, you want to pack up and take around the world with you. Real, proper team players will do what's required for the team and won't ask questions but also when it's required they will do their best to try and influence try to influence a game you know with Andy we saw what he did in Bangladesh taking six for getting 70 just a really gritty player and and someone that goes under the radar big time but I think when we look back in years to come we'll realize what a great player he was for Ireland he's been around pretty much since I've been around so I've spent a lot of time with him and, and got to know him really well and he's a good friend as is George and I think that's why We've had relative success as a team is because we're so close as a group. We do a lot as a group. Naturally, we spend a lot of time with each other. We did, going back to the kind of into the bubbles. Um, I think the hardest part of the pandemic cricket was waiting on results. You, you could spend two or three hours before the lab would come back with your results where you're sitting in your room feeling fine, but knowing that you could have it. Um, and that was the worst thing. I, I eventually felt so bad. I had passed the test, but felt so bad that evening went and got my own test and had two lines and I was like well like how, how, <laughs> it's just look at the draw sometimes but I did feel miserable so yeah I think it's we we have some really good players and we're very lucky at the moment with some of the players we have 
I guess the flip side of those good results, I mean, you won a game each against Zimbabwe and the Dutch, but lost those three-match series, got swept by Afghanistan. Given that you're so close to direct qualification now, is there a lingering frustration that against teams that were in your hitting zone in terms of teams that you would have felt some confidence you could have taken down, that you weren't able to do that? Yeah, I mean, I personally can't look at the Super League table. I haven't looked at it for the last six months because I look at the Dutch series that you spoke about, the two games against New Zealand last year, um, we lost by a wicket and a, a run. Uh, in two of those games yeah it's just if we got one from Afghanistan but at the same time we beat South Africa we beat England we beat West Indies in a series so it probably levels itself out but certainly yeah I think we'll look back on it and, and go you know we actually there was a route there to qualify automatically but we can't if we if we keep looking at back like that we we won't get anywhere and we have to now focus on trying to get out of the qualifiers in the desperately frustrating situation that well, there's no World Cup Super League after this World Cup, right? So you've played 24 one-day internationals, eight series that have all had quite a lot riding on them. And you'll now go back to a hodgepodge uh, bilateral series as they come up. Maybe as teams come to England, you might get a series here or there. Yes, there are, there are more World Cup qualification spots and that's the cold comfort that there'll be 14 teams playing in in 2027 you were part of the side in 2015 when the news came through that the world cup would reduce to to 10 as it has for 19 and and 23 right through the middle part of your career too that must be so frustrating but there will be a world cup in four years time that you're in a better place to qualify for but between times the the uncertainty about the cricket you'll now go on to play that must be really tough yeah and you know the 2019 World Cup in England would have been a huge occasion for us as, as Irish cricketers, being so close to home. Probably the lowest point of my career was that Afghanistan loss in the in the qualifying final or whatever it was, the semi-final. That was a really low point for us as a group. We had a pretty good team um, at that time. And yeah, it was it was disappointing when we found out because that 2015 World Cup was such a was such a great occasion for us and we showed that we can compete at that stage. I think going forward the Super League is is a you know, it's not great. It's tough on us, but at the same time, teams like Netherlands, who have acquitted themselves really well in this Super League, um, you know, where, where how can they progress as a, as a country and as a team? And and teams like Scotland, Nepal, these sort of teams, we're very fortunate that we've snuck in as a full member, and 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 countries will come and play us sporadically or ha- however many ODIs. But what's in it for the the other teams, and how are they going to get the fixtures that they deserve as players? And and they've got some really good players in their in their squad. So yeah, we're we're lucky that we will probably get the cricket. But I think as a whole, um, if you're going to look to to grow the game, you have to make sure that everyone gets a pretty even share of the the, the fixtures. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford Brent, and you're listening to the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. If we can take it all the way back to the start with you, how does a boy growing up in Dublin in the 1990s fall for cricket? How does that become the thing that takes a hold of you? Um, I spent the first four or five years of my life in Marlow. It's just outside Wickham. I think it's west of London. And my first memory of cricket was dad just taking me down to the village uh, cricket ground and, and me just kind of throwing a ball around with him. I'm not saying that's where I, I got the bug, but it's certainly where I first... Thing- uh, encountered cricket. My dad's dad played in in the YMCA club in Pember- in Dublin, in Sandymount, where where I grew up. And and when we moved back to Dublin, mum and dad bought a house that was a hundred yards away from Pembroke Cricket Club, which is where I spent every day of my summers. Um, I didn't want to do anything else. I played a bit of tennis on the side, but 
I think when I was sort of, you know, late, maybe nine, 10 or 11, Owen Morgan was kind of still under 14, under 15 in, in the region and was doing really well and going over to play for Middlesex underage. And I think he was probably the one that I aspired to be like because I saw what he was doing and he had gone through a similar path in Dublin that I had gone through. And uh, yeah, I think just Pembroke Cricket Club is probably, you know, myself, Josh, uh, Lorcan, Barry, Kim Garth. That's the club we were all kind of raised in and, and played our cricket in and, and spent a lot of time with each other in the nets and um, that's where the love of the game came from. Speaking to your teammates from the previous generation, they, they still remember the era when cricket was really not the done thing. West Brits and uh, having to hide the cricket bat and pretend you were playing hockey and any other number of things that were done over the years in, well, the decades of the Troubles especially. And that's a, a logical reference point as well, I suppose, for you. You're a little boy when the island of Ireland, if you like, is still ravaged by violence. Do you have many memories as a kid of, of that or, or are you sort of inoculated from that a little bit having spent time in the UK yeah I you know I didn't I I wouldn't have spent much time or I didn't hear about it that much I think certainly as a Irish cricketer you spend enough time in in parts of the country where this sort of violence and history is is so clear to see and um, particularly going to places like Derry and Belfast um, I absolutely love the history of the country I think it's fascinating um, and I love the fact that as an Irish cricketer, we represent everyone. We have people who, you know, I played with people like John Mooney, who were very passionate, very, you know, tricolour on the arm, um, huge, huge Republic of Ireland person. Um, and then you have people like Andy McBride, who's from Donamana, and the, the, the curbs are painted uh, blue, white and red. Um, it's, it's staunch kind of Great Britain. But when you take the field and, and put on an Irish cricket jersey, you will do anything to get a result for that team and, and for that person beside you. And I think that's quite unique. Um, the rugby team have something similar and the hockey team, they play for the whole island. Um, and I think we're quite lucky that we can play games in Breedy, we can play games in Belfast, we can play games in Dublin. And people there are supporting the Irish cricket team. They don't take into account what's happened before. Or And you will get the, you'll get the odd person or the odd thing, particularly in, our, in, in Dublin. You know, cricket is still seen as a, a British game and you know, only a couple of years ago I was chatting to someone um, and they said, what are you playing that stupid British game for? And it's like, well, that's my job and I absolutely love it and I play for our country and um, you couldn't really get his head around it, but um, some people won't be turned and, and that's fine, but um, I'll try my best. So what is that that broader social status, I guess, of cricket? Like it, it's interesting for us because if you grow up in Australia, cricket is huge. Not everybody likes it, but its place, its significance is never questioned. I guess looking at Ireland, it seems it's it's much more of a niche sport or at least that's how it seems from the outside. What's your perspective on that, you know, as the captain of the Irish team now? How do you think it's received more broadly um, in a social sense across the country? I think certainly when I started playing for Pembroke and, and in the men's teams, you didn't really venture too far out of the of Dublin. Um, certainly where I grew up in Sandymount in in Dublin, you have YMCA, Railway Union, YMCA where the Tectors are from, Railway Union where the O'Briens are from, Pembroke where, where I grew up and, and the names that I said earlier. And you maybe ventured to Clontarf, Malahide, Balbriggan, North County where the Moonies are from. And apart from that, there wasn't too much. But now if you look at the, the Leinster leagues, there's teams in Wexford, there's teams in Waterford, Tipperary, oh, sorry, there in Munster, but um, like Wicklow, Carlow, all over the country now in the Munster leagues, there's teams in Kerry, Cork, Waterford, Tipperary, out west you have Galway, and up north you have teams all over the place. So uh, 
I have seen a massive change in that. It's something that I've actually spoken to Craig about. Is I think us as Irish cricketers should kind of do our best to to get out to those clubs and and you know if it's run a training session or train with the group or coach a group whenever we do have time it would be great to do that because I think I've always said that we're the ambassadors of the game um, as players and it's our jobs to to make the game as big as we can um, we're, we're competing with rugby football and GEA which are powerhouses they're like the I suppose AFL and, and rugby league in, in Australia but um, we'll do our best as players to to produce performances that makes people want to be proud of this Irish team and um, I certainly get a lot of pride when I see all these new teams being formed around the country and, and, and seeing all these unique grounds around the country as well. It makes me pretty proud as a, as a Irish cricketer. Gives you a great opportunity as well, that, that younger generation, your side, not the one that came before, but very much your team at the moment, that you can expand your horizons, that you can talk about not only, um, say, getting national contracts. I mean, there's 27 national contracts for the men now and I think it's 23 for the women, which was unheard of a generation ago. That Now you've got that, You've reached that threshold, you've laid that base, you're making World Cups, full member nation and so on. You can go away and really be territorial and grow the game and and make cricket a more desirable sport for kids who may never have heard of it, who wouldn't have the experience of a a parent playing or a brother or sister playing, but they find cricket through your team and your teammates. Yeah, and I think, you know, I played with a lot of amazing cricketers underage who at 17, 18, 19 just fell off the the wagon. under-19 World Cups were quite important for us um, to keep guys in the game until 1920. But certainly after that, there was a big drop-off. And I think that's still probably the case, is we have to, whatever way we can, and again, I'll try my best and help out as, as much as I can, we have to hold on to those players and not lose them to rugby, to football, to other things. And I think Cricket Ireland are doing their best to do that. and and contract you know, guys at university and give them support while they're at university as well. Um, because like we were in Sri Lanka there and uh, we had a couple of injuries to bowlers and, and we're, we're, we're scratching our heads and we're looking around to see where we can get some bowlers to come out and <laughs> to bowl in a test match in goal. And um, it's tough as a captain and it's tough as a, as a team, but if we can build that sort of um, structure and build that depth of player, and somehow find a way to, because there's some amazing athletes in the country that naturally go to GAA and rugby because they get into academies at rugby and they get sub-academies and they get scholarships to, to big universities around the country. And there's nothing like that. Trinity College would have a, a cricket scholarship or a sports scholarship, um, but not many have cricket-specific scholarships. And yeah, it's, it's something I'd love to get involved in when I finish playing because, you know, I've spent my whole life devoted to, to cricket in Ireland and... I think it would be stupid of me not to to delve into that when I'm finished in some capacity um, because I'm so passionate about it and I can see the the talent that is there and it's just a way of nurturing it and, and, and taking it to the next level. So that life that you've spent, I mean, you've seen so much change just in the last few years in terms of the professionalisation of the game, the changes after becoming a full member nation and all of the rest of it. Even when you were a younger man, did you look at cricket as something that you might one day make a living out of or was it more about just enthusiasm for the game itself or more about the pride of playing for the country like what was it that made you think I'm going to devote myself to this as fully as you have I think growing up in Ireland I didn't think that I could make it as a professional in Ireland I knew that I'd have to go over to England that was the thing to do at the time Um, Ed Joyce, Owen Morgan, Boyd Rankin, Niall O'Brien you know, the list goes on. Gary Wilson 
uh, William Porterfield, all of them. So I think I was 15 or 16 where myself and Sterlow got invited over to Middlesex by Graham West and Toby Radford, I think it was at the time. Uh, we spent two days training at Finchley. Well, I didn't set the world alight, Sterlow probably did. Um, but we got invited back to play under 17s games the following summer. Um, and then it just kind of went on from there. Uh, I spent a summer on the YCs at MCC. Uh, and that was the first time that I genuinely kind of wanted to be a professional cricketer and felt like I could do it. But it would have to be in England. It was 2010 at the time. There might have been two or three contracted cricketers in Ireland and they were your sort of Kevin O'Brien's, Trent Johnson's and John Mooney's. Um, so there was no way of getting paid to play cricket in Ireland. So what I wanted to do was play for Middlesex and play for the young cricketers. Uh, I went to Cardiff and did a played in the MCCU there, loved that, and then spent my summer months in Middlesex, you know, playing for the twos and running drinks at Lords, which was brilliant. And uh, yeah, I, f I think I was probably the last of a generation to, to get county cricket exposure before coming back home. And even though you didn't have a sort of substantial county career, you had the experience of doing it, your players can't do that anymore because you're a full member nation. That, that's the, the trade-off, I suppose. Being a test-playing nation, that transition period's ended. You lose someone like Tim Murta in that transition, albeit at the very end of his, of his career. The Irish domestic system has to stand up and, be, and, and has to be good enough to develop players. And, and I suppose that's the challenge for you and other senior players is making sure that's that's a deep enough pool because you can't jump across the sea and, and play in England anymore unless you're contracted as a, an overseas player, which, which might be an option for some of you guys. I know Paul Sterling does that from time to time and there have been uh, guys who've played in, in the blast. But as a week-to-week -week pro, that, that's going to have to be Ireland standing on its own two feet from here on in. Yeah. Uh, I, at the time, thought it would be a big miss um, not playing county cricket. But I also hold my hand up and say I might have got that wrong because we are seeing players in our team now who had no county cricket exposure and are becoming some of our best players. Lorcan, Harry, um, Curtis obviously came from South Africa, Josh. So they didn't have that exposure and they've come out. I don't think, it's, you know, I think these are almost generational players. I don't think we're going to get that every, you know, generation. Um, so we will have to find a way to bolster our domestic system. We need to play on really good wickets because that's what you play on in international cricket. We need to play on wickets that, you know, when there's nothing happening, you need to have a fast bowler. So I'm talking four-day cricket here, and you know we currently don't have a first-class structure. I've spoken already about you know during the test matches how important that is for our for our players. It's slightly different this summer because there's so much international cricket that when we do have a a gap in our international schedule, it's probably going to be rest for us players, uh, senior players. Um, I don't think there's going to be too many opportunities to play domestic cricket. Now that will have a good knock-on effect because your younger players in the Leinster Lightning, Northwest Warriors, Munster Reds will have to play that list A cricket, T20 cricket. So that'll be good because you'll you'll see pretty quickly who looks like they can make that next step up to to Wolves cricket, which you know I've been a huge advocate of. Um, I still think it's the most important team, if you like, or or structure in cricket Ireland because for men and women there needs to be a, a stepping stone from domestic cricket to international cricket, um, and that's where you really find the 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 jewels, if you like, uh, and the really top players that can make that step. So there's still work to be done, but I think Cricket Ireland are well aware of that and are, are getting down to it as, as best as possible. So you had to wait for your first class opportunities through things like the Intercontinental Cup. That's where you made your, your first 100 in first class cricket against the Dutch. I mean, that's a, 
another structure that doesn't exist anymore, like the World Cup Super League's going to disappear. Like you, you've you've played in so many different competitions that have come and gone and and drifted off. The the whole structure has been reshaped so many times, uh, even over the career that you've had. You're only 32, but it, it seems like um, there have been a million different variations and interpretations of international cricket that Ireland can play across that span. Yeah, I, I think the Intercontinental Cup was really important for us as players at that time. It was the only Red Bull cricket that uh, we played. I don't think Interpro cricket had Red Bull cricket at that time. And um, a lot of the generation before me's most memorable moments were in Intercontinental Cup games. Um, and it's a real shame that that's not around anymore. I, th- I don't think there's any below test cricket there's not any international red ball cricket which is which is a big shame I think it's such a pure format like I said earlier um, and I know that having spoken to a few of the players from Holland and Scotland they'd love to be playing it as well because how can they prove to you know the, the powers to be that they're ready for test cricket if they don't play any red ball cricket so um, yeah I have played in a lot of different competitions you know you have your sort of caps for Ireland or your overall caps for Ireland and you know I, I got my 200th against Zimbabwe and I think there's a number of different, you know, list A games that aren't now deemed capped. Um, first class games um, against, you know, touring like Sri Lanka A and stuff like that. Um, so caps that wouldn't be caps now. Uh, we only do ODIs, T20s and test matches for caps, um, which is the way it should be, I think. But um, yeah, it certainly has been a, a lot of different competitions that have kind of I've had. It feels an example to me where there needs to be greater cooperation across countries that are in a similar part of their development. I know that you and Afghanistan have a great relationship and rivalry, which is kind of cool, right? Ireland, Afghanistan, there wouldn't be too many uh, parts of life where those two nations would have much to do with each other, but on the cricket field has been for a long time, thanks to the Intercontinental Cup and and other comps like it. But yeah, cooperation to have more four-day cricket to make sure that um, it isn't just a case of like, I know the Euroslam T20 that didn't happen, that was nearly kind of a thing in Europe with with the Dutch and with Scotland and that was obviously disappointing that they couldn't get off the ground and the pandemic didn't help with that. But yeah, whether it's in Ireland or, or across nations who aren't, say, in the top eight or the top ten but want to develop and want to do more, that, that you can collaborate through the ICC and have greater opportunities together. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because the IPL is clearly almost seems to be running cricket at the moment and the BCCI and I was watching Josh play last week for the Gujarat uh, Titans and you know they're the number one team in that league at the moment and out of their four overseas players you had two Afghans and an Irish player and that's that's interesting in itself because these are guys who weren't brought up on you know the huge fundings massive infrastructure but yet they're having a key say in one of the big leagues in the world and I think if if that same view is looked upon in Scotland and Holland and Nepal and UAE and all these teams, Namibia um, you would then start to see players filter into that league as well because there are some seriously good cricketers that don't get enough exposure. We see them at T20 World Cups and and that's probably it. You know, I see them a lot more than maybe the, the, the normal fan or the neutral spectator will but certainly that was a bit of a wow moment because you know three, three players um, out of four to come from Afghanistan and Ireland is pretty cool. That 2015 World Cup, that's a it's a bittersweet one. I mean, Ireland play so well through that competition. You beat the West Indies. There's that crazy run chase against the, the UAE with Kevin O'Brien. I mean, you're one win away from a World Cup quarterfinal at that point and then they slam the door on you. They reduce the tournament 
back to 10 teams. Like it, it must have been heartbreaking. I remember William Porterfield at the time being very vocal about it, um, but for everybody in that squad, it must have been crushing to have got there, acquitted yourselves so well and, and then been told, you know, pretty much, sorry, see you later if you can get through the qualifiers. Yeah, it was. And I think from memory, it was announced before that World Cup that it would be a 10 team from then on, I think. And I remember the senior players, Joycey, Purdy, Nobby, taking almost having a a chat about let's go as hard as we can here obviously we need to do well but once we started winning I think there was definitely a big sort of social media media generally push for the lads to to say this isn't really good enough um you know it was at the time where we weren't a full member so our only exposure really was in those competitions um now it's slightly changed that we've you know, the World Super League has given us more games, but at the time it was like, well, how are we going to showcase our skills on at this level? Because we're not going to, unless we qualify, which would be very difficult, we're not going to have this chance. So um, I, I vaguely remember tweeting something as well after our last game at the ICC and then waking up the next morning and deleted it because I think it was <laughs> I think it was actually pretty bad. We've all been there. We've <laughs> yeah, all been there. We've all been there. I kind of regret it though. I think once you've put something out there, you've got you've to stick with it. But um, yeah, it was. it's a shame because I, I think if we had, you know, I think we won three games in that World Cup, which we thought at the time would have been enough to probably get us through. There was one result that really kind of went against the grain. I think West Indies beat Pakistan and Pakistan beat South Africa, which just threw it all up in the air. And it was a shame. Uh, we could have had a really amazing occasion at a quarterfinal, but I think at the end of it, we were pretty proud with our efforts. And in obviously, there's there's a great opportunity now for the, the World Cup this year going into the qualifying tournament, albeit a tournament where South Africa were almost in that and you were almost uh, through and, and Jeff's already referred to the chances that have been missed in the last couple of years. But yeah, I, I do wonder into the future, this idea of broader cooperation inside the continent of Europe, the fact that England plays so little against Ireland, the Netherlands and Scotland outside of the formal structure, whether there might be room for an annual quadrangular T20 tournament or, you know, something like that or a, or a formalised Wolves-Lions relationship. I mean, it, it isn't like putting man on the moon to see where England can play their part and the ECB, who have in the past done so through county cricket, I'm not denying that, but going forward now, in the next 10 years, what they can do to ensure that other teams in the continent or on the, on the continent and Ireland as well can have the chance to take the next step. Yeah, I think... Uh I think England have been pretty good to us in recent years. Uh, we obviously have the three games at the end of the summer to look forward to and three you know, great grounds with this test match coming up. It's interesting, we're, we're playing the qualifiers in Scotland this summer and it'll be the first time I've played an international in Scotland. Out of you know, 205, 210 games, I've never played in Scotland. So I think a lot could be done between us three if you take England out of it. I think we could play each other more. Um, obviously our summer at the moment is, is packed, so there's maybe not room for it this year. But certainly, you know, going into the next cycle, uh, going into the next sort of 50 over cycle, if you like, four years, I think there could be room for us three to play each other more. I think the World Cups over the last two years have showed that there's not a lot between us. Um, we'd obviously love to play, th- you know, with England and us three, but their schedule is obviously pretty demanding. But yeah, I think certainly as a, a sm- you know, as a, a four team continent, if you like, for cricket, I know there are. I know Italy are coming up through the ranks, Germany, there's loads of countries around Jersey, but certainly uh, it'd be great if we could play like a four-team T20 comp or something.
And from an Australian perspective as well, you were used as a bit of a bargaining chip, Cricket Island, a couple of years ago when the, the chairman of Cricket Australia was trying to negotiate an extra test match for Tasmania to curry favour with that state board. That didn't happen. We'd never heard of Ireland coming to Australia for a bilateral series since. And back in 2019, they didn't fancy coming over to Malahide to warm up against you. And of course, England have taken the opportunity again this year to warm up for the Ashes effectively against Ireland in a, in a four-day test at Lords. Do you hope that, that sides like Australia will, will show some respect to Ireland and, and come over to Malahide and, and play win a test match when they next come through to play England and other countries might follow that pattern? Yeah, I, like it's, it's kind of the, the obvious one, I suppose, is a team coming to England for a, a four or five match series or a three match series rather than playing you know, an inter-squad game or a county team, because I know, I don't know how much counties love that. Um, the county the county season is so packed at the moment and you have so many different things happening with the 100 as well. And it would be the, you know, it's not far, it's Ireland, like it really isn't, it's an hour away. Um, I, do, I don't know whether, our problem is we don't have a stadium, we don't have a ground and, and to host a test match is very expensive and that's been, said before by Warren um, and that's that's out of our control as players so yeah even if it meant us flying over to play a test match against let's say Australia wherever somewhere in England but again it's hard on on counties or the, the test grounds to produce something for a test match but yeah look I, I'm very happy and fortunate that I have played six tests because I didn't think that that would be the case when I first played for Ireland so uh, now I'm getting probably a bit greedy. Uh, I wanted to play at you know the SCG and the MCG. Um, I'm lo I'm very fortunate that I got to play at the MCG. That's something I'll always remember. But yeah, I think it's probably been a bit greedy looking for test matches all around the world. It might be slightly distant comfort, but there's also the fact that the World Cup at the end of the next four-year cycle will go back to 14 teams. You'd be 36 then. Is that something that you've got an eye on? That that you is that an ambition, or is that too far away to think about it yet? Um, yeah, I think it's it's naturally, you know, late 30s, mid to late 30s, uh, all going well. I can get to that stage and, and they still want me around and I'm still performing. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to hang on just for a certain tournament. I, I understand the game is a performance-based sport and if I'm not pr producing the goods, you know, in the next couple of years, I'll not be stupid or naive enough to think that I, I deserve to be there. So uh, I think that's certainly on my radar, that sort of, World Cup, uh, we've got to try to qualify for this one, obviously, but 36 is a pretty good age for a cricketer. Um, if I can get to that stage and still be playing at a high level, I'll be very blessed and, and hopefully that's the case. And you've already said it yourself that when it's all over as a player that it feels like you're, um, you're an administrator in waiting in, in some capacity or, or something off field that can continue to advance the cause of Irish cricket. Yeah, I think so. I, 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 I've I'm, I've spoken to a couple of people about it like naturally we have people back home who look after you in terms of life skills and, and what you want to do when you're older and you know I sit down with these people and, and it's like oh will I go into this will I go into that and you know I don't know a lot about much other than Irish cricket I have an opinion on stuff but I've spent my whole life trying to make the game bigger in my country and I'm trying to do that as a player and a captain and I don't know why I'd stop just because I stopped playing. I think I could probably do more when I stopped playing. Um, I don't know what capacity that would be and, and whether they <laughs> they might be the sick of the side of me um, when I finish <laughs> playing, uh, who knows. But it's something that I'm hugely passionate about and I try to show that on the pitch and, and hopefully 
whenever the time comes, I can show how passionate I am off the pitch. Let's hope so. You're a fantastic advocate, leader and captain of the Irish national men's side, Andy Balburnie. Thanks for taking some time to speak to us on The Final Word, being so forthcoming in your answers and, and good luck for the rest of your English tour. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Andy Balburnie, who, as expected, was an excellent guest. I think, yeah, if, if you were like, give me a word, give me one adjective for... Andrew Belburney, I think it's composure. He's he's so level um, in his approach to just about everything, to success, to disappointment, to the optimism for Irish cricket, um, but tempering that optimism. He's a realist um, and he's not afraid to speak plainly um, when it comes to the powers that be in cricket, which which I think is it comes with the territory for uh, particularly for leaders of sides who, who are outside the bracket of the the most favoured, most highly favoured nations. You need to be willing to speak your mind because nobody else will do it for you. you know, we saw reports, didn't get a chance to ask him about this, but on, on Crick Info overnight, Osman Sammy Uden sort of crunched the numbers and, and talked to those you need to speak to. I mean, Ireland, according to reports, are projected to receive $18 million over the next four years. You compare that to India, who are projected to receive $231 million. So, I mean, the rich are getting richer. And, mm. and, uh, and I'm not saying that that's not a, a considerable amount of money for Irish cricket in relative terms compared to what it was before. But uh, that the art of the possible, it's just never going to be quite what it is for the bigger nations who are more established around the board table. Yeah, well, that figure is the projected annual figure across the next four-year deal. Um, so it, it, it's, it's an interesting one because it is a decent slab of money for Irish cricket, but you do wonder if the, um, if, if the richest were prepared to take a bit of a haircut, um, they could be doing so much <laughs> more in the other countries that need more development. Um, but let's just say I've, I haven't encountered many very wealthy people or organisations who don't want as much money as possible. <laughs> yeah, and, and like I was really encouraged by Andy saying sort of towards the end of the chat that he wants to stay involved when he stops playing. Like, And a lot of players do, whether they want to be coaches or, or media pundits, or, and that's perfectly fine. Like a, lot of our, a lot of our close friends in the game have done exactly that, have taken that path. And what do they call it? A portfolio of responsibilities between the commentary box and, and working mm. with sides in a professional capacity but Andy's sort of it feels like his eyes have been tilted the other way towards administration you don't hear from many international captains who are already thinking a couple of steps ahead about how they might be able to influence matters well and truly off the field. Well I suppose when you've been playing through your career with the frustrations of the limitations of the administration that you're in, um, not that the administration isn't trying, but that the resources that they have to work with have been so limited and they have done a terrific job, you know, the campaign to get full member status in the first place and to be able to build up what they have and put on the tours that they have and so on. It, it's been a, a triumph against the odds really, but he's in the ideal place to see how much better things could be um, and, and, and the reality of what those changes would represent. You know, if you were able to bring about further change, then he knows exactly what that would mean for the players who would be representing Ireland into the future across the men's and women's teams. So 
he's in the best position to know that and I'm heartened to think that he's he's got an appetite to throw himself into that once his playing days finish up, which, as he said, might not be for quite a long time yet. Mm. And Warren Dutram can't do it all forever, right? And he doesn't do it all on his own anymore, by the way. Gone are the days when he was the one paid employee of Irish cricket or however the story goes from 2007. But Warren's done so much good for Irish cricket and we'll try and catch up with him at Lords on the podcast during the Test match. But, yeah, the very fact that they've got nearly 50 contracted players now, right? Like, I think the last time I went to Dublin with the Irish team in early 19 to do some work there, they had 14 or 15. And maybe later that year, they brought in six part-time contracts for the women. Like, that's a great part of the story that um, that now there are so many professional Irish cricketers in various bands. They're not earning the same money that they're earning over here, for example, or the Australian team are earning. But just that dignity of being able to earn a living out of your profession and not having to combine it with myriad other things to to seriously compete on the world stage. And as we've seen in the development of women's cricket in Australia, in England, the way it's developing in India, you don't necessarily need to be paid huge riches, but you need to be paid enough to actually train professionally to dedicate yourself to doing it full time. You know, that's the only way to try to match the best teams and the biggest teams with with more resources. But if you can at least train full time, even if you're on a, a much lower salary you can you can hope to you can acquit yourself as as best as possible you know you don't have to be compromising the preparation you've got just in order to try to get by at least through the years that you're playing and it just helps make the case to government as well when it comes to stadia like andy made the point that malahide isn't a cricket stadium it's a gorgeous club ground that they turn into an international venue a number of times a year, not not only in Malahide but other parts of the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland which they used. They played in Derry for six games against, uh, it was against New Zealand wasn't it last year and the Aussie women were there as well, Belfast. But yeah, that they can find somewhere to build Dublin an actual as well. dedicated, well yeah, well Malahide sort of is like almost a suburb of Dublin. Whether they can over time have a, uh, a dedicated stadium and the centre of excellence to be built into that and they've got the training facilities there not far away in, in Dublin but yeah at some point having uh, the professional era sweep through as it has and more success and more World Cups it should uh, lead towards further investment from from the central government which in turn means the next generation will have the facilities they need to to be their best so yeah it's a, it's a bit of a virtuous cycle. Yeah well it's a gradual game of um, moving inch by inch towards something that's that's the way it seems but they haven't lost the motivation to keep putting in the effort uh, if you're a new listener to the podcast maybe you're an irish fan who's uh, who's found this pod for the first time listening to andy balberni you can um, keep listening to us we produce uh, a weekly show talking about the issues of cricket usually an interview a weekend show about the history of the game we've told many irish stories on that across the journey on story time and then we make daily programs through the international summer both in australia and england and other parts of the world where we tour on the final word that's all underpinned by our patron community patron.com forward slash the final word not only does it mean you're backing in what jeff and i are doing but it gets you the golden ticket to our discord channel which as we always say is the nicest corner of the internet to talk about cricket uh, and it gives jeff and myself the chance to to invest in this more and more in the years to come there's something analogous there to irish cricket really isn't there 
the more that we have, the more that we can do. Yes, it's, it's, it is about gradually building towards <laughs> a better world, Adam. That's what we're all about. <laughs> and uh, I should note in passing as we say goodbye that we're still in training for the um, Edinburgh Half Marathon. So we've been talking about Irish cricket, Scotland cricket. Uh, I might try and do a little bit of work up there when uh, I'm in town in Edinburgh for the Half Marathon with a bunch of other final worders, final nerds uh, across the long weekend in May, late May. Uh, if you want to contribute to that and our fundraising efforts there for the mighty Lord's Taverners, you can do so through the link in the show notes. All right, uh, time for us to say goodbye from Essex. This has been The Final Word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, Andy Balburnie. Thanks for listening. See you later. I had to go.